passage from which we got the sermon series title, Where Else Would We Go? You know this passage. You've probably recited it before. Peter's words you've taken up onto your own lips. Where else would we go? It's a, it's a comfort, a bedrock kind of consolation to us. When we are distressed, when we are trying to figure out what is it that we really believe, what are we really anchoring with, what are we tethered to, what are we hoping for. But the precipitating sermon, conversation, and grumbling disputation, to sound like a Puritan, the arguing and the back and forth with Jesus that preceded Peter's words, are called a hard teaching that many of his disciples who had been following heard him say and decided they couldn't stick with him anymore. I don't like it, but apparently really good preaching will sometimes make people go away and not stay. It happened to Jesus. May it happen today. No, No, I don't want it to happen today. But Jesus has had this long discourse, the longest sermon in the book of John, about him being the nourishing bread of heaven which gives life to the world. He's standing right beside Moses in the imaginations of the people who are wrangling with him, who are wrestling with him, who are arguing with him. How are you going to prove that you're greater than Moses? He's just fed the 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes. He's just walked on water to terrified disciples and said, It is I, do not be afraid. People are in search of him. And Jesus sees through their search and realizes, You want me only because you think I'm a sugar daddy. You're going to make me king by force. That's your desire because you had your bellies filled. But do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. He's trying to wake up their expectations. He's trying to make their vision of reality less cramped and larger. He's trying to adjust their expectations. He's giving them a way to educate their expectations in this sermon. And the way he does this is he makes a series of claims that they come to find unholdable for them, implausible for them, too unreasonable for them. He says, the manna you got in the desert for 40 years, it wasn't actually from Moses, it was from God who now gives you bread from heaven, which you may eat. And he says things like this, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll live forever. Here's a big distinction between me and the manna that came from heaven, even that magical nutrition that also was not genetically modified by the heavens, They ate it morning and quail at night and they had this peculiar 
condition, all of them. Though they lived off heavenly food, none of them escaped the fate of death. They all died. All of them. But here is a bread, he says of himself, which you may eat, which you may take into yourself, and you will live. But not just today. You'll live forever. They get hung up on the things he's saying. He seems too self-important. He seems to be making himself sound like God. He seems to be making himself sound like more than Moses. And isn't this Joseph and Mary's kid who one time scraped his knee and we had to bandage it up and put the Neosporin on? How can he say he's God's son? How can he say he's bread from heaven? And he's urging us toward cannibalism? How can he give us his flesh to eat? His blood. And a chalice to drink. And I was reading the responses to Jesus' words. And of course, we probably would have responded the same way had we been hearing them afresh for the first time. But it made me think about the difference between childish reactions and childlike reactions. Because a lot of what's happening here in this long sermon where Jesus holds himself out as the soul's nutrition for unending life that can give you certainty of what's going to happen on the last day, on the morning after the world's last night, C.S. Lewis said, So that you can live today better, freer, fuller, less fearful, less nervous to control everything. And so what's happening here is that these people who are listening to Jesus are unprepared to adjust any of their expectations about what they already think. That's called childishness. We make distinctions. The Bible would urge you to aspire to child-likeness, to some sort of simplicity of trust, to some sort of manner of humility, of littleness, of acceptance of the truth of God. But the Bible and most of the people you know would not want people to remain in a state of childishness because there are parts of being a little kid that aren't supposed to remain. For instance, one of the things that a child has as an expectation is that their will is the most important one on the planet Earth. And therefore, they find it intolerable if they should ever bump up into another will that seems more important than theirs or can overpower theirs. So, for instance, it's time for bed... And as if for the first time in their lives they're hearing it, they may have gone to bed 365 days a year, say, theoretically, for five years of their life, if you have a five-year-old. That's over 2,000 times of going to bed. And you might say, it's time to go to bed. And they might say, no! Their will is experiencing a collision with another will. Or, you could say they're bumping up into reality. 
See, Dallas Willard said that reality is something that you can count on. And it's what we often bump into when we're wrong or when we're sad or we're sorrowful. We bump into reality. Sometimes we think reality is just what's in our head and just what we're making and just what we get to enact and just what's going to happen to us. And children all the time are bumping up into realities of wills stronger than theirs and they hate it. But see, these guys do the same thing and so do we. There's a childishness to us. The the sense that they say, aren't you Joseph and Mary's child? You can't be who you say, even though you've just fed all of us, 5,000 people with these loaves and fishes, even though you've just walked on water, even though you're holding out and saying four different times in this sermon, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth. There's a reality beyond what you can see, beyond what you can taste, beyond what you can hear, beyond what you can feel. And they're saying, no, 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 our version of reality is sufficient. What we think and what we already think is all there is to think. We won't be altered. It's like protesting every single night that you're not going to bed when someone's going to make you. And the other thing that happens when you bump into this reality, this will that's stronger than yours when you're a child, it's just you, you lose all sense of proportion or the relative importance of things, which is why you can see, and this probably never happened to any of you, but I have witnessed other people's children in, say, a target, acting as if the fact that they had been recently shot was a surety. That's the only explanation, shot or electrocuted or or jabbed with something really sharp and unpleasant, because the way they were carrying on, hemorrhaging with want, bursting with tears, unintelligible because of the angsty overflow, this geyser of discontent. You don't even know what they want. They just want something and they're not getting it. A truck, a toy, a doll, a piece of candy? Who knows? But they want it. And sometimes they might make themselves pass out for want of it. And certainly sometimes they're going to act as if they're going to die for want of it. And we can look at it. And if we're feeling awfully smug, we can say, these stupid kids. And if we're not feeling smug, we can say, oh my gosh, is that a mirror of me? I'm just a little more polite. I just do that screaming on the inside when I don't get my way. But see, what's happening is, is they don't have a sense of the relative importance of what's happening. They're not getting a truck, and so they think their will's not being met, their wishes are not being heeded, their needs are not being supplied, their needs. Therefore, life as they know it is over and cannot function anymore. And they won't adjust. They think, the world must adjust to me, so I'm going to throw a tantrum and try to make it miserable for everybody else until the world adjusts to me. Until reality conforms to my wishes. And if they are going to be a healthy person one day, they will learn that the world is rarely going to adjust to their wishes, and they will have to adjust to reality instead of asking it to bend to them. Unless they're Luke Skywalker. The people talking to Jesus don't have any room for a Messiah 
who's going to come and say things like, you've got to drink my blood. Jews don't touch blood. Who's going to say, you've got to eat my flesh. I've been with God. If you want to have life, you have to take me into yourself. They don't have any sense of there being a possibility of something beyond what they can see. They're not able to hear an interpretation of what God's up to beyond what they already thought. They won't adjust their expectations. They're asking reality to conform to them instead of being willing to conform to reality. It's a kind of childishness. A child can think they put their fingers in their ears or they cover their eyes. I can't hear you if they don't want to hear you. They think if I say I don't hear you, even though you're talking, nothing is being said. And these who walk away, it's not that they fail to understand what Jesus is saying. It's that they don't like what Jesus is saying. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? They don't say, who can understand it? They say, this seems implausible. This seems hard to accept. This seems defiant of all that we've come to expect. We thought there would be a Messiah. See, first century people, just like 20th century evangelicals, also get confused and think, if God will set up his man with political power, then suddenly everything will get fixed up right. And so they'll sell their souls, like evangelicals have done, to gain political power, or to keep it. And Jesus here is giving them this picture of an upcoming sacrifice, this flesh and blood that he offers, his his flesh and blood giving over of himself, which we might identify with, which we might in a sense, take into ourselves and be nourished by it and brought to life by it. He's going to take death on himself and bring us to life. This is not something they had an expectation of. So they're asking reality to bend to them, and they've got no clear sense of proportion. We're just going to walk away. This can't be that important. But Jesus, as he's talking here, says a number of times things that he seems to think are rather important. Thus, he says four different times in this little sermon in John 6, I tell you the truth. That's an interesting way to start declarative statements. I tell you the truth. You're looking for me, not because you saw the miraculous signs and loaves, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who is giving you the true bread from heaven. Ah, 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 Right here. I tell you the truth. He who believes in me has life in the age to come. Everlasting life. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus is saying, this is reality. You can conform to it, or you can ask it to conform to you. And if he's telling the truth, these words that can sound in our world like cruel words, 
are actually the most gracious, magnanimous words that could be offered. Because Jesus, as he tells these truths, couples them with these reassurances. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of my Father who sent me. And this, he says, is the will of my Father who sent me. He wants all you turkeys. He wants you. That's his will. He wants you. He gives you to me. And he says, hang on to him, Jesus. Hang on to them till the last day. And on the last day, raise them up. Let them conquer death like you did. If you got up from the grave, so will I. And Jesus says, that's my goal. That's my determination. That's my fulfillment of the zeal and wish and pleasure and want of God. To hang on to everybody that he saves. And raise them up at the last day so they can enjoy life in the world to come. Because Jesus knows what people in the olden days used to know. Let me tell you a secret. Come on close. In the old days, this is why the Bible is so hard to understand. Because used to people... Now, you'll have to check the commentators on this. Used to people died. Like a long time ago, people used to die. They don't anymore. And we don't have to worry about that anymore. But used to people lived a certain amount of time and then they were fragile and like things happened to them like they got cancer or they had they had mental illness or they got in a car crash or you know a, whor- a mule crash <laughs> and and then they wouldn't be alive anymore and so used to people thought about that like what's going to happen to me afterwards now we know that's unsophisticated barbaric stuff that's simpleton primitive stuff we don't have to worry about that anymore no one dies anymore after all you, you get the sarcasm, right? I saw a few faces of smiles. No, no, no. See, we're in the same boat. We think we've changed, but we haven't. We just live a little bit longer. Like five minutes longer in the grand scheme of things. And so what Jesus is saying when he says, I tell you the truth. I'm telling you the truth because I want you to overcome what every single person is trying to avoid every moment of their lives, whether they realize it or not. I want you to be able to live forever. And it ain't through your fame. I want to live forever. See, you don't know this show, do you? I want to learn how to fly. You can live forever. You can have life in the most real world. That's what Jesus is offering. Because he knows this world is short. And eternity is long. And people used to worry about that. And they used to think things like, what if I'm answerable to God? What if there is a last day? And everything that I think is hidden about my life ain't. What if I'm going to be judged? What if I'm going to be inspected? What if I'm going to be examined? What if I'm going to be held to some kind of standard that even the the smartest people in my age think is silly. But what if Jesus is really telling the truth? Well, man, he's being really gracious, isn't he? Hear him say this, I tell you the truth. I want all of you to live forever with me. I want all of you to be liberated from the tyranny of death. I want all of you not to feel guilty. I want all of you to be cleansed from contamination. I want all of you to live in the most real world so that you can live today, that you can know on the judgment day, on the last day when Christ comes in this shining light that's more harsh than any fluorescent light, which is going to be bad news for some because every knee will bow, but it can be good news for those who will 
stand and marvel at his glory, we're told. We'll see him and become like him. We won't be consumed with shame. We will be overcome with joy. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. I want you to have that. But it's on my terms, not yours. You don't get to make up this stuff because it's my world. I made it up. And I'm saving it. And they said, this, this is a hard teaching. I don't know if I can accept this. That's a, that's a childish way of responding where you, you don't adjust your expectations You ask reality to conform to you instead of you conforming to it. You say, I have my ideas about God. Those are my ideas. I'm just going to stick with those. I have my ideas about politics, about money, about relationships, about myself, about how things should go. I'll just stick with those. That's childishness. I'm going to get out, bent out of shape about very tiny things. As if I'm never going to die. As if I'm not going to live forever. That's childishness. And Jesus says, well, look, if you're going to walk away, why why are you grumbling? Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. I just realized that clock is not right. I count on it, and it's not right. So, now I'm confused. Um... It's off by a lot. This, this, okay. But Jesus is reminding these people, hey, here's one reason you should listen to me. You should probably listen to anybody who comes out of heaven. If you want to know about life in the world to come, if you want to know what happens after death, if you want to know how can I overcome my greatest fear, What if somebody came from heaven into earth, into flesh, and then they died and they were resurrected and a lot of people saw them and they saw it and they were so transformed by it they were willing to die because of how true they thought it was. And then he ascended back into heaven. It would be an indication, wouldn't it, that this would be somebody worth listening to. This would be an authority worth succumbing to. This would be a power worth giving ourselves over to. Because who else does that? Who else is advising you that has a kind of power with their advice? What podcast are you listening to where someone can tell you something that is going to give you the power of an indestructible life? That's one description of Jesus' power. Or the spirit, this life-giving spirit that he is, that his words are spirit words. They're, they're come-to-life words. They're, they're the words of Aslan's breath that make statues. Come to life. What are you listening to? How are you being discipled when you, when you look at, at FaceTweet or, or Instabook? And you're getting discipled all the time about what you should expect and what your life should be like. Are you getting life out of that? Are you being emboldened with courage? Are you being set free from sins? Are you being changed to do what you couldn't do before? Are you having your desires altered? Are you having your expectations and needs for what has to happen changed? Well, Jesus, the one who came from heaven, experienced death, pinned it in a half Nelson, stood victorious and was ascended into heaven, has poured out his spirit and says, these words here, these, these words are spirit words. 
and they give life. And so you got to listen to them. And the others, they just, they turned back and they no longer followed him. And Jesus asked the disciples, what about you? Are y'all going to leave me too? And as Joe Novenson, you've probably heard him say it, has said, all the questions that God puts to people in the Bible, all the questions that Jesus puts to people in the Bible are for the benefit of the interviewee. The one being questioned. Jesus asked them so they can rehearse what they really believe. So they can say aloud again what they trust. Like we make a confession of faith. An affirmation of the story that we are a part of. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in the communion of saints, the resurrection of the body. A life everlasting. I believe. And Peter says, in response to Jesus' query, are you all going to leave too? And Peter says, there is nowhere else for us to go. Because we've considered reality. We've considered its harshness. We've considered our fragility. We've considered our need. We've considered your claim. And we believe that you are who you say you are. And this is such a comforting answer. It's a childlike answer. When Peter says, where else would we go? We believe and know that you have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. You're God's appointed rescue. You're God's sanctioned redeemer. Where else would we go? Isn't it wonderful to think that to become a Christian doesn't mean that you're saying, where else would we go? This is easy. I'm good at this. Well, no, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I'm good at following you. He's just saying, I got nowhere else to go but you. And he's not saying, I have everything about this figured out, which he'll demonstrate 62 more times in the gospel. He doesn't have it figured out. He just knows this is the person most worthy of my weight. This is the only one in the universe that I can lend my full weight upon who isn't going to disappoint me. This is the only one I can give my heart to. The only thing I can give my heart to that isn't going to end with my life. Everything else you love is going to end when you die. It can be taken away from you. But Christ who promised you life and life eternal, Christ who is defeater and conqueror of death, Christ who is the victim, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as Augustine said, also has become the grave's victor. Can preserve and guard your heart forever. And you don't have to have it all figured out. You just have to heed the invitation. Come. Come identify with me. Come lean your full weight on me. Come trust me. Come put your confidence in me. Come to see me, like Dallas Willard said. Most of us don't think this way. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the smartest man who ever lived. Well, most of us don't think that. They mocked George Bush when he said his favorite philosopher was Jesus Christ. <laughs> what an idiot. W. <laughs> But what if he's who he is, said he is? You think there's somebody smarter? I saw a tweet this week. Carl Sagan, God tweeted, Carl Sagan, just prove to my face using mathematics that I don't exist. God said that. It's a joke. 
because that can't happen. Not Carl Sagan, I'm sorry. Carl Sagan's another physicist. Hawking, sorry. See, that's part of why you're confused. Carl Sagan, who's Carl Sagan? Billions and billions of... Sorry. They're, they're, they do the same kind of work. Where else would we go? There's a comfort to these words because they, they let us know there's something about the aspect of trusting Jesus that means we don't have to figure out everything that's going to happen. We don't have to know everything that's going to happen. We don't have to get our way. We don't have to know how to defend everything. We have to know this, that being a Christian means I am taking Jesus Christ at his word. Walking away from him means that I have decided to not take him at his word. The people who walk away are saying, I hear you saying, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth. If you want to live forever, link up with me. I hear you saying it. I can't accept that. I don't want that to be true. I don't want to give myself over to you, and so I'm going to put my fingers in my ear and hope it's not true. Behind every atheist, behind every unbeliever, is a heart that doesn't want it to be true. A heart that wants to hang on to themselves. A heart that wants to protect something. A heart that says, I am defending this fortress and nothing's getting into it. And Jill Poe, in the Narnian story, figured it out when she was dying of thirst and she came to this rippling brook that made her ten times more thirsty. The water bubbling. She could see it crystal and inviting, so wet and delicious looking, only there was a lion in front of it. A lion! You know the story. She didn't know the story. And she thought, i got to get to that water, or I'm going to die, but there's a lion. And she asked the lion to move, and he says, I will not. And she says, well, do you promise, after he says, you may drink, do you promise not to hurt me? I make no such promise, he says, with a low growl. And she says, well, then I guess I'll have to find another stream because I'm really, really thirsty. And he said, there is no other stream. Peter felt the same way. So he adjusted his expectations. He said, if I want to get my thirst filled, the hunger of my soul satiated, I had better listen to the one who offers me living water, nourishing bread, life in the most real world. There is no other stream, but if you'll come to this one and keep coming back, you'll drink, you'll live, and you'll be glad not only today, but forever. Amen.